Hello, all you spooky nerds, creepy geniuses, and kindred spirits. We've got all three Patreon tiers in the house, and hell's to the yes, we are excited about it. The more people who sign up, the more we can post. So if you like what we're doing here, please keep sharing and caring. And if you hate what we're doing here, you might want to try the Joe Rogan experience. That that one seems to be a real crowd pleaser. So earlier this month, we introduced Hottest Hell followers to fake ectoplasm. That thing all charlatan mediums performing seances in the late 19th slash early 20th century needed to master if they were going to score the big bucks. If you missed learning about that with us, there's a link to the original post in the body of this one. As a brief recap, spiritualism got crazy popular during the 18 and 1900s, and we mean popular. People were spending their Friday nights going to seances instead of Applebee's. They were confronting their fears about death. They were hanging out, playing with Ouija boards and tarot cards. It was like a whole thing. And while some folks seem to really commune with the dead, or at least interact with imprints of deceased something, large numbers of folks fell prey to frauds and charlatans. See, it's, it's pretty cheap and easy to convince desperate people you're talking to ghosts. And it was especially easy in the 19th century, back before a million TV shows and websites were teaching folks how to debunk frauds. One of the cheapest ways fake mediums could convince innocent victims that ghosts were present was ectoplasm, which was like a a poorly defined substance that allegedly appeared when spirits made contact with flesh and blood mediums. Ectoplasm could be a foamy slime, which some frauds would make from hydrogen peroxide and toothpaste, or it could be a weird, wet, gauzy substance, which was usually cheesecloth dipped in dye and embellished with little pieces of paper. The best charlatans would swallow their ectoplasm and then regurgitate it during a dramatic moment in the seance, something which probably looked very convincing in a dimly lit parlor. But like all cons, the faking conversations with the dead scheme eventually fell apart, and faux mediums faced public scorn for preying on bereaved customers. I mean, they thought they were chatting with dead loved ones and were paying a lot of money to do so, and that is sad. So exposing fake psychics became a mission for adversaries of the spiritualism movement, and some mediums found themselves wishing they'd never puked up cheesecloth in public to begin with. There are so many stories about mediums, fake and potentially real, being publicly scrutinized and prosecuted for scamming citizens. Some of them are hilarious. There's actually an old book out there written by scammers for scammers telling them to use a monkey in drag as a stand-in for an actual ghost. Some of them are really depressing and involve stolen money and broken-hearted widows. And then there's Helen Duncan's story, which is just, yeah, hers is why we're here today. And you can't make this shit up. So, uh, Edward, drop that tag, baby. Let's tell these people a story. One of the more notorious stories from the decline of spiritualism is that of Helen Duncan, a Scottish gal who became famous and then infamous for communicating with the dead. Helen toured the UK during World War II and in 1941 held an event where she claimed to connect with the spirit of a dead seaman. 
This sailor allegedly told her he'd been killed when a German U-boat sank the HMS Barham, a British naval ship. At the time, the war office had not yet released info on the Barham. They were, in fact, trying to cover up the bad news that 861 men had perished in the attack. Attendees of Helen's seance were super impressed. The British government? Pissed. Furious, even. Though, since they're British, it was hard to tell. They started keeping a very close eye on Helen Duncan, who continued her touring without any idea intelligence workers were now tracking her. On January 19th, 1944, police raided a Helen Duncan seance. According to witnesses, it was quite a scene. Law enforcement burst through the door right in the middle of the action. People were screaming, shit was getting knocked over, there was arguing. One cop apparently tried but failed to stop a spew of ectoplasm from Helen's mouth. Gross. Cops had to force her out of her trance state to handcuff her. She was arrested on the spot and charged with witchcraft using Ye Old Witchcraft Act of 1735, an archaic piece of legislation unused in the country for over 100 years. One prosecutors literally had to go digging for because otherwise they didn't have a reason to legally arrest her in the first place. Why did this happen? Well, leaders of Her Majesty's Royal Fun Spoilers had investigated Helen's knowledge of the HMS Barham tragedy and decided that the only possible explanation was espionage. They charged that she couldn't actually speak to the dead and must have been tipped off by someone in a government office. With the D-Day Normandy landings approaching, officials were terrified she'd ruined their massive secret invasion. So they threw her in jail, rather than, you know, just asking her not to tell anyone if a ghost told her about it. But let's back up a little, because Helen's got a pretty wild story, even before being tried as a witch in the middle of contemporary Britain. Helen was born Victoria Helen McRae on November 25th, 1897-ish. That's an estimated date. To a large and lower middle-class family in Colander, Scotland. From the start, she was something of a spooky nerd herself, creeping out the other kids in school by making dire predictions about the future and bursting into fits of hysteria. Her mom, reportedly a nice Presbyterian lady, was not thrilled about her child's maudlin fixations or her claims that she could see dead people and hoped Helen would grow out of it over time. But she did not! The anxiety, fits, and bleak predictions never left. Helen was described as a, quote, noisy, comma, boisterous tomboy, end quote, an offense which earned her the nickname Hellish Nell around town. Like most good Scottish lasses at the time, Helen married at age 20. His name was Henry Duncan, a wounded war veteran who made cabinets for a living. And unlike mom, he was totally down with Helen's supernatural side. He had no problem with her making extra money by cultivating her skills as a medium, which she did by holding sittings for friends and neighbors. When not communing with the dead, Helen worked in a bleach factory and raised six children, which, no offense, sounds like a combination that would make me desperate for a nighttime hobby like dead people parties. And it seems that young Helen was a good medium enough so that people in her town began talking to people in bigger cities. 
She got invited to lead seances at rich people's houses and conducted services at spiritualist churches. Witness accounts stated that Helen didn't just close her eyes and say, Oh, your dead wife is in the room. Duncan seances often included physical manifestations of other people's deceased loved ones. Some reportedly would reach out and touch their bereaved family members or hold hands with strangers. These manifestations could speak, and they knew information which customers swore Helen could not have possibly known. According to a file on the history of the Duncan clan, quote, the evidence that flowed from these physical phenomena seances were astonishing. Dead loved ones appeared in physical form, spoke to and touched their earthly relatives, and in this way brought both proof of survival and much comfort to thousands of traumatized and grieving wartime families, end quote. And this part is important because Helen's rise to prominence had everything to do with the war. So many young men were dying. So many innocent civilians were dying unexpectedly. Therapy was not a thing yet, and so millions of people were experiencing a mass traumatic event without the tools necessary to cope. Seances and spiritualism at large were actually a therapeutic tool for a lot of suffering people. A good medium, whether they were full of shit or not, could provide closure to people who otherwise may not have gotten it. One prime example of this was actually shared under oath during Helen's criminal case in London. A widower named Vincent Woodcock, great name, had brought his sister-in-law to one of Helen's demonstrations as she toured the UK. During the event, Woodcock watched Helen slip into a trance, then produce ectoplasm from her nose and mouth. To his amazement, Vincent's dead wife materialized from the ectoplasm and asked Vincent and his sister-in-law to stand up. Then the spirit removed her wedding ring in front of everyone, placed it on her sister's finger, and spoke aloud, it is my wish that this takes place for the sake of my little girl. Over a year later, Vincent and the new Mrs. Woodcock turned up at another Helen Duncan seance. Once again, Vinnie's dead wife appeared and addressed her now happily remarried husband and sister, expressing joy that they had wed and saying she loved them both. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. Vincent Woodcock declared all of this to prosecutors, jurors, and the press in the middle of the Old Bailey courtroom in London. Look it up. What a fantastic day to get stuck with jury duty. Anyway, this is how Helen got famous enough to tour. And then famous enough to get arrested for witchcraft. Which brings us back to 1944. Helen Duncan was made to stand trial in London. She was ordered to report to a hospital where her arms and hands were bound and she forced to enter her trance state and produce ectoplasm under the scrutinizing eyes of a court investigator. Her orifices were searched for evidence that she stored fabric or paper in them. She was hounded by press, as was her family. People picked her apart in pubs and around their dinner tables, and Christian churches condemned her. It was a really bad time. A media spectacle, the week-long case captivated the entire country because, hello, this is the stuff court TV was made for. 
And not all of the witnesses were as complimentary as Mr. Woodcock had been. One person testified that Helen had been caught with a doll under her dress, trying to pass it off as a ghost baby during a seance. The investigator who observed Helen in the hospital stated he believed her to be, quote, a gifted regurgitator and claimed that the ectoplasm was nothing more than dressed up buttercloth. A respected journalist and attendee of many seances, Hennen Swaffer, took the stand with a cigarette in his mouth and declared that anyone who thinks ectoplasm is just buttercloth is, quote, a child because under a red light in a seance room, it would look yellow or pink. And these spirit forms all displayed a white appearance, end quote. Another man named James Harries, a justice of the peace and chief reporter of the Scotsman, stood in front of the whole court and said he'd seen Helen Duncan summon the spirit of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the dude who wrote Sherlock Holmes, who then spoke to the room in Doyle's, quote, unmistakably gravelly voice, end quote. Then someone else hopped on the stand and said that all of Helen's manifestations were hired actors. It was very compelling entertainment, but ironic, given the entire case was Helen being on trial for executing compelling entertainment. The trial ended with Helen being sentenced to nine months in Holloway Prison. As the news was delivered, the mother of six, devoted wife, and resident of Scotland burst into tears, wailing that she'd never heard so many lies in her life. For what it's worth, most people felt like putting a middle-aged lady in prison during a world-fucking-war for possibly, because they couldn't prove she hadn't, not speaking to the dead was a profoundly stupid, more than a little misogynistic waste of resources. Winston Churchill himself roasted the court over it, writing, Let me have a report on why the Witchcraft Act of 1735 was used in a modern court of justice. What was the course of this trial to the state? Observing that witnesses were brought from Portsmouth and maintained here in this crowded London for a fortnight, and the recorder kept busy with all this obsolete tomfoolery to the detriment of necessary work in the courts. What was the cost? It might not sound like it to you millennials, but that's a solid burn. Legal experts asserted that while, yeah, it did seem like Helen faked some of the more theatrical shit at her gigs, the whole ordeal was a violation of her freedom of religion. Christianity, after all, tries to pass off bread as the body of a dead guy all the time. At least a doll looks like a ghost baby. As a result, the Witchcraft Act was ultimately repealed, but not until 1951. Parliament was forced to officially recognize spiritualism as a protected practice in 1954, but no one ever issued a pardon to poor Helen. Helen Duncan was eventually released from prison and returned home. She did in time return to doing small seances, but never of the size or scale she once did. And she was still harassed by police at some of them. The final years of her life were spent mostly being a punchline in local jokes and chastised by Christians as a Satanist or witch, though she did receive some love and support from old fans and proponents of religious freedom. Helen died unexpectedly in 1956. She is now remembered as the last witch and is mostly celebrated for it. 
We like to remember her as a boss mom who supported her family by throwing up cheesecloth in public, which you have to admit is a pretty niche hustle. And to be fair, there's no evidence that Helen couldn't speak to the dead. There does seem to be evidence that, yeah, she integrated a lot of theatrics into her seances, but like, this isn't actually a crime. Every major religion in the world integrates showmanship with authentic ritual practice. Choirs, candlelight, incense, drumming, holy water, chanting, robes, rattlesnakes, speaking in tongues. How is any of that really different from dressing up your meditation practice with potentially fake ectoplasm? We argue that it isn't. Anyway, that's today's secret story time. You can read more about Helen Duncan's fascinating and tragic life. We could not include all of it here. In Medium on Trial by Manfred Cassier, Calling the Spirits by Lisa Morton, or The Excellent Hellish Nell by Malcolm Gaskell. We think you'll find that Helen's most serious crime was being a bit of a tomboy and a lot of a nonconformist, which kind of makes us feel like she's one of ours rather than a charlatan who deserved to sit in a prison. Anyway, stay weird, friends. <laughs>